Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking how to pursue love from the 1920s to the 2020s. To be a bolter running away from convention or a stolid stayer? That's the question Nancy Mitford poses in her semi-memoir, The Pursuit of Love, written in 1945 by an author at home with English country house intrigues and embroiled in the political extremes of the era. But the question also resonates today for new generations charting fast-changing sexual norms and broader choices too between heady freedoms and a more settled life. That message from a novel which begins in the lavish world of the Roaring Twenties has lively echoes for our life choices a century on. Stepping out from behind the camera for the first time as director and star of a jazzed-up TV adaptation is Emily Mortimer. A screen figure on both sides of the Atlantic, she's a waspish English rose who grew up in a British literary dynasty and she's kept audiences enthralled as the hotshot producer Mackenzie McHale in Aaron Sorkin's The Newsroom, as well as being directed by Martin Scorsese and David Mamet. The Pursuit of Love follows the Radlets, an eccentric English aristocratic tribe across the interwar period with a host of bright young and older things, including Lily James, Dominic West and Andrew Scott in the cast, along with my guest. Emily Mortimer, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for having me. Now, for listeners who may not be so familiar with the novel The Pursuit of Love, tell us a little bit about the story and also what drew you to it, of all the things you might have wanted to adapt from that period. I had always loved the book and I had always been slightly fascinated by these Mitford sisters. I was very interested in in, in the novel to begin with and I'd read it when I was a teenager. But I have to say, I have to admit, it wasn't my sort of burning desire necessarily to turn it into a piece of television. I was approached by the producers and asked if I might uh, think about adapting the novel for the television. And my first thought was... I really loved that book and I'd love any excuse to read it again. But is the world really in need of another period drama about posh people? So it was with, with a bit of trepidation that I opened the book and, and, and I hadn't, you know, I, I wasn't necessarily going to say yes. And then I read reread the book and I felt it was just such a blast of sort of wild and fresh and brave air rereading it again and and I read it in a sort of I suppose obviously with a different perspective all these many years later and felt that it was incredibly courageous writing incredibly honest writing incredibly direct about the sort of complicated business of being a woman both both then and now it felt to me and yes they were posh people living in posh houses but it wasn't really about that at all and and I felt that the world definitely 
did need a dose of Nancy Mitford again, and and I was psyched to to start to to try to adapt it and find a way to put it on the screen. The family in the pursuit of love are called the Radlets. We know they're broadly drawn from Nancy Mitford's own rather adventurous family, as you say. Like viewed from one angle, they're six posh girls with questionable political leanings. It's the real Mitfords. But did your perception of them change from the time you first read it as a younger woman to reading it now? It struck me as that, that, that this was a book about this family of children who had been all but trapped in, in this beautiful prison in the middle of the English countryside. And it's about this desperate need to escape and see the world that Linda has. And and it really felt very strongly like that that was the driving force behind when you look at the lives of those Mitford children, all of them went on these incredible adventures far away from home, but all kind of marked by this figure of their, their father, the, the Uncle Matthew character in the novel who was obviously an incredibly sort of dangerous and and yet quite exciting character to be around. And you feel that his presence is very much a factor in all of their lives. Like they all craved excitement and adventure, but they also were determined to kind of escape, escape their childhood and run away as far as possible from home. Speaking of running away, as well as adapting and directing, you play the mother of the narrator, Fanny, who Nancy Mitford describes as a woman who ran away so often with so many different people that she became known as... The Bolter. The Bolter. <laughs> you, you, why, <laughs> the script question is, why did you want to play the Bolter? I mean, why would you not want to play the Bolter? Exactly. The Bolter's a heroine. She's a fantastic character, first of all, and the benefit about being the bolter was that, uh, and directing the thing was that I was, I, it was a great part, but I was only in about four scenes, so I, I could come and go and, and, and hopefully cause a splash, but in a kind of condensed fashion. The reality of doing it was not so perfect. I, I felt very confused running around with a sort of wig on the top of my head trying to be both in the scene and direct the scene at the same time and um, I found it very challenging I'm not sure that it's something I I will rush to do again soon direct myself in anything I don't know how people manage to do that so as successfully as they do you said so you maybe wouldn't opt to do it again having done it did you find directing yourself hard are there moments when you thought Come on, Emily, not like this. Oh, my goodness. I mean, constant. Well, I just was in a state of paralysis, honestly. I didn't even really know what was going on in those moments. I, I, I really enjoyed directing. I felt my happiest self doing it. I, I, I found out that I really loved to be sort of behind the scenes, but helping people in front of the scenes do their best and, and bring their best work and tell this story. And it was it was a delight. Uh, I loved it. But the times when I was acting, I was like deer caught in the headlights. I couldn't, I was sort of not able to concentrate on what the other person in the scene was saying. I wasn't understanding what I was doing. I was, comp- I just didn't show up for either my fellow actors or my fellow crew and couldn't even watch the thing back. Was I so sort of upset by the whole situation? So uh, it was it was very much cobbled together in the edit in the editing suite, as they say. Uh, my performance as the bolter, as I said, they were they were just three days in a very long shoot that was mostly really easy. But those three days were not no, not fun. But anyway, the bolter is a fantastic character, and on the one hand, is kind of much discussed by all the other characters in the in the novel and much frowned upon because she's had so many boyfriends and li- lived such a sort of rickety life, in their opinion. 
but there's something very unapologetic about her attitude to life, which I find as a woman uh, who has a tendency to apologise. She's an incredibly refreshing character and in some ways is a heroine, in my opinion, to be admired. There's, there's the thorny issue of the fact that she wasn't a very good mother, but that also is a, is, a, is a subject that I think is discussed with great kind of refreshing honesty and it's a taboo subject, motherhood and not being good at it as a woman still today is something very difficult to talk about with any degree of sort of honesty or clarity. There's a great scene where she says to a rather damaged daughter, don't let your children hold you back. Yes. And you think at one point, you think this is actually really shocking. <laughs> There's another bit where a lot of people with children go, yay, <laughs> I <know>. go, bold. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I, think it's, um, I think it's a question that men have never had to, well, not to such a degree, had to, to grapple with, you know, the sort of, being fathers hasn't really had to hold many men back up until now. Whereas being mothers is, is, is so intertwined with the business of being a woman that it's very hard to sort of get, get clarity on the whole thing. And, uh, and I think that it's, it's not that the, that the abandonment of, the, of, of children is, is, is condoned in the novel or indeed in the television show, but it's definitely brought into question and, and discussed in a quite sort of open and refresh, refreshingly honest way that I think is, um, is really interesting to me anyway. I, I found it very uh, su- su- surprisingly brave, the, the way that Nancy talks about that stuff. Your adaptation's been called punky because it's glam rock costumes mingling with a soundtrack from New Order to the Rolling Stones and, and some contemporary music too. I'm interested why you decided to go that direction as just sort of roughing it up a bit in terms of cultural and contemporary references. I guess you were never going to make a stage costume drama, but you could have decided you were going to go fully on immersive in the period and really just take us into it. I knew I wasn't going to use the music from the period because honestly the music from the period is really to my mind, quite depressing and not at all sexy. And, I mean, that that period, sort of 20s, 30s jazz, doesn't, to me, conjure the spirit of the book, which, and I think the book is has a real punk rock soul. Linda is a punk rock character. Had she been born in another era, she could have been a sort of Debbie Harry or, or a poet, but she wasn't. So her only, her only sort of tools for self-expression were through men see the world and experience life. And she did that to its fullest and she hurled herself at life in, in a dangerous and, and, and thrilling way. As I said, I think it's a, the book has a punk rock soul and I was, I was verified in my feeling about that because I have a Marianne Faithful track in, in episode one, Give My Love to London. And when the music supervisor on the show asked Marianne Faithful if it would be okay to use her song, we got an email from Marianne Faithful saying, of course, please use my song. And The Pursuit of Love is my favorite book ever. And I think if, Ma- if it's Marianne Faithful's favorite book, then it's definitely rock and roll. Someone we should mention to bring this to the, the fore, Andrew Scott is Lord Merlin. I'm so sorry. What sort of birds are they? Just ordinary pigeons. Why'd you get them that colour? I dye them. Isn't that practically cruel? Oh, no, they love it. They love it. It makes them so pretty for each other. What about their poor little eyes? Oh, they seem not to sharpen. The gender-bending Lord Merlin with his dyeing his pigeons pink, and who doesn't do that at home on a regular basis? I think he pretty much steals every scene he's in. He's a lot of people's favourite character. Is there a danger he kind of overpowers the action? Partly because he's... It's just Andrew Scott. He's very good at doing that. But also this character is so extreme to start with and has foregrounded so much visually. 
Yes, no, of course, there's always a danger with Andrew Scott that he's going to steal the show on any occasion. Um, and he's brilliant. But I think that Merlin as a character, he symbolises something about that period between the wars where there was this movement, there was this feeling of excess and a kind of reaction to the avuncular grown-up vibe coming out of the First World War. And then suddenly, you know, obviously, as we all know, the Roaring Twenties came and that these people emerged, especially in aristocratic circles, who were great modernist thinkers. Lord Berners, who Andrew Scott's character, Lord Merlin, is based on, was exactly this character, somebody who had dyed his pigeons all multicolored and had them flying about his house, had horse, had his horse for tea. Invited to tea, as opposed to, <laughs> opposed to for tea. Invited his horse to tea, was a, was a Dadaist, was into surrealism, was, was sort of allergic to conventional notions of morality. The, the conversation that's going on constantly through the three episodes is, how how to live one's life especially as a woman do you if you're if you're like fanny the narrator you're more careful and you're observant and you you make more conventional choices and you think that's the right way to go or if you're more of a linda then as i said you hurl yourself at life and you live life like there's no tomorrow because there may not be there are different camps in the in the story and merlin is most definitely on the side of living your life like there's no tomorrow and making something wonderful of life. I think that has that is celebrated through the novel and through the um, series as a notion. Of course, it comes at a cost, but I think as a notion, especially for women, the feeling that you are allowed to live life big, you are allowed to make mistakes, it's important to make mistakes and that you should be free or that you should at least aspire to some sort of freedom is a really important notion and it takes a, a big flamboyant character like Merlin to, to help make that case, you know. You've written about friendship before in your HBO show Doll and M and I'm interested that a lot of really interesting drama is coming out in recent years about female friendship. I'm thinking of, of girls as well, Elena Dunham's sort of strong attraction to getting drama out of the female relationships. And it just struck me when I thought about that, that you went to an all-girls school and whether you feel that female friendship is in some way underrepresented or needs to be revisited or there's something new that we can do with it. I think it's a really interesting way of exploring the notion of what it is to be a woman because once you sort of get men in the picture it becomes it becomes confused with 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 all sorts of other things any kind of buddy movie is is interesting as as a genre because they're two people who are very similar in 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 lots of ways and yet of course different and part of the tension and part of the drama comes from the way in which they compare each other to each other like that's that's what and i think that's what happens in life you know you you go through life with these friends that you've grown up with sometimes and, and and you get to different points in your life. You get to sort of get married and have children if you're leading a more on a more conventional path or not or start get jobs or whatever or get sick or and 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 you're always you've always got this person, this fellow traveller that you're kind of comparing your path to and they're comparing their path to yours and Inevitably, that kind of brings up jealousy, it brings up confusion, it brings up sort of a self-questioning all the time. Is this, should I, am I doing this right? Should I be more like them? Or, and I think that's just a good sort of way to explore what, what it's like being a girl or what it's like being a boy. 
And how much do you think, coming from a writing family, John Mortimer, your late father, wrote Tea with Mussolini. He adapted uh, Brideshead Revisited, a very famous series on British television and, and beyond, uh, based on the Evelyn War novels. We were talking to Paul Theroux on this show a few weeks ago and his relationship with Louis Theroux and uh, with children and fathers, men in, in that case, all in the kind of writing trade. And I wondered how much you still... Do you still feel him hovering over your typewriter, as we might have said uh, when John was alive? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that because I feel that he's sort of there somewhere all the time, everywhere, not just when I'm working. Or I don't know, he's just so much part of me. I think with this one particularly, I, I felt his presence. He would have been tickled by the whole thing. I think he really was fascinated by these Mitford people. He had written a radio play uh, called Unity, about Unity Mitford, who was the one that supposedly had it off with Hitler. He was a good friend of Jessica Mitford, who was the communist, um, who who ran off to fight the, the Spanish in the Spanish Civil War with Churchill's nephew, Edmund Romilly. And, um, in fact, Nancy Mitford and, and was sent by Churchill on a warship to come and bring them home. It's kind of embarrassing that Nancy Mitford turned up to bring them home on a warship. Um, but anyway, my dad was very besotted by the lives of all of these characters and loved all these books. And so there was something about that that was definitely ever present as I was writing it. I kind of, without thinking, knowing it, I was sort of making sure that he'd find things funny or be amused by them as I was putting them in. Another subject that's very lively at, at the moment, who is making what drama, who is the audience, who is in it? Uh, Akala, who created the hip-hop Shakespeare company, said recently period drama's too focused on elites. You need more black and more working-class drama. Has he got a point? Um, and I suppose that's reflected in the kind of commentary uh, from those who say, well, do we really need another drama about posh white people in country piles? Guilty as charged. <laughs> yes, no, I, I definitely think that there needs to be, well, there needs to be dramas about everybody. And this one is really about two women trying to work out how to live in the world at a time when the only option was to live through the men you married. That was your, that was your choice. And if you wanted to change that, you had to have affairs with men or get divorced from the man you were with, and at which point point you would be labeled a bolter and a scandal scandalous disgusting woman and your life would sort of as your reputation would be over so that's to me really interesting this particular show is 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 also kind of about xenophobia in the sense that there's a sort of brexit story in the in the sense that there's this as i said this uncle matthew character who is very averse to anyone uh, meeting anyone or especially his children meeting anyone who doesn't look or think like him. But because it was about a xenophobic person, there was a kind of, it was difficult to make it colorblind, which would have sort of addressed that concern. I mean, that would have sort of very much confused the storytelling. But I did make great efforts to have diversity nonetheless in the show. And both the leading men are, are non-white actors. And there is, there is diversity there. Uncle Matthew is a full-on xenophobe. You equated it, or seemed to, with Brexit. I mean, is that really fair? I think it, well, I mean, I, I think mean, he really that... is a, he, he absolutely hates all foreigners, right? I mean, presumably not 
everyone who is a Brexiteer is like Uncle Matthew has played as a grand guignol by Dominic West. I don't think he's a Brexiteer necessarily. I'm sure there are lots of people who are Brexiteers who are, are open to foreigners of all kinds. And, um, and, and I didn't mean it that way. What I meant was it was a story that felt resonant at a time of Brexit because of his suspicion of the outside world and the, and a feeling that that anyone that was beyond the gates the confines of his his little plot was to be suspect. He's abroad's a terrible place. I'm never going there. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like and abroad is to be deeply sort of um, wary of. And so I felt like when I was first writing it that it was resonant in that sense because it was a coming. I was writing it at a time when we were in the middle of Brexit and there was all these questions about what to think of, of, of being part of the world or, or of the world or, or, or not, or part of the outside world or not, beyond our doorstep. But then, then COVID came and, and, and it stopped being a Brexit story, really. I felt like it became more of a story about life being very fragile and, and the war coming and there being a, a periods in our history where you don't know whether the person that you love most in the world is going to live or die the next day, let alone yourself. So listen, you have a, a, a bit uh, like me, as you want something in common. We both have Russian in our background. You studied Russian at at Oxford. Do you fancy a Russian adaptation? I want to write about Russia for sure. I would love to make a, a film in, in Russia. I think it's a, a very underrepresented place, partly because it's quite difficult to go there and make things. But I do think that it's the way that it's been represented of late in our universe has, has, has not been representative of of all that it is at all. And it's so much more than just sort of Putin and and oligarchs. So we might see you again in Russia. And in the meantime, is this there a pursuit of love quote that we should take with us through the, the, the our own turmoil-filled or difficult days? Whether we're a bolter or a stayer, <laughs> well, what, 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 what quote, Desert Island go-to quote that you like to remind us of i love this quote that i put in the i put it in it's not actually in the pursuit of love it's i think it's in ons and rebels the mother of these mitford sisters these mitford children that were so sort of feral and and impossible to control would would tear her hair out about their behavior and and sit down with them try to desperately instill some discipline and sit down with them every so often and get them to write out on pieces of paper how they would economise on a household of £200 a year. And apparently Nancy, every time she did this without fail, would write at the top of her piece of paper, £199 flowers, which I put in the um, <laughs> I put in the first episode, but I just think that's the most brilliant sort of V sign to the expectations that are put upon us as women. And it's just so funny and so... Brilliant and chic. £199 flowers, that's how you would economise on a household for £200 a year. Definitely, that's it. Exactly right. <laughs> that, that's, that's the way I'm, I'm <laughs> going to take on the housekeeping bill from now on. Thank you very much for joining us, Emily Mortimer. Thank you so much, Anne. And you can see The Pursuit of Love on BBC iPlayer and Amazon Prime Video. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might be interested in my recent interview with Aaron Sorkin too, and you can find that among our Economist Radio podcasts. We'd love to know what you make of all this. If you've seen The Pursuit of Love, do you think it does Nancy Mitford's novel justice? And are there literary adaptations 
you'd return to time and time again. Those love or hate versions from Baz and Shakespeare to the glam rock Mitfords. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And sticking with Russian adaptations, as Emily mentioned at the end of our chat, The Economist's Books and Arts section has reviewed a new performance of Dostoevsky's The Brothers Karamazov from the Mali Drama Theatre in St. Petersburg. It was published in the 19th century, but it's been modernised for Russia in 2021. You can read all about how that's done on our website, and why not subscribe for that and many other cultural joys besides. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producers today were Pete Norton and Alicia Burrell. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist.